Shalom, shalom, friends. That's one of the nigunim I like to use for Hodu Lashem Kitov Kilo Lam Chasdo, an expression of gratitude um, since it's the week of Thanksgiving for those who celebrate Thanksgiving. Um, an extra time to remind us that the actualization of the feeling of gratitude is not just a feeling, but is ultimately channeled towards service. And if we can continue to cultivate gratitude because that itself is meaningful, but then to channel that gratitude for whatever we have, for whatever goodness we have in our lives towards the service of others, um, then that's a beautiful thing. So I give you all that bracha and hope you'll give it back to me that we can continue to fuel our gratitude towards service. So friends, today is session number 28 with John Dewey um, from 1859 to 1952. Going to start with a poll question here to get ourselves thinking about one aspect of his of his thought. Primary goal of education for children should be to socialize kids, to cultivate critical thinking, instilling values. What's the primary goal of education for children? Should it be to socialize kids, social skills, cultivate critical thinking intellectually, cognitively, instilling moral values? Okay, very interesting. 10% said to socialize kids, 70% said to cultivate critical thinking, and 20% said to instill values. Instilling values is very um, became very unpopular in recent decades. Um, it was once thought in America that that was kind of most central. Whether that meant patriotism, proud to be American, whether that meant democracy, whether that meant capitalism in the fight against communism, whether that meant Menschlichkeit, um, you know, understood in American terms. Um, but then that became very unpopular, given kind of the liberal conservative wars and what values matter. And um, values have been politicized, of course. And um, the type of values conservatives would celebrate are often as very different than the kind of values that liberals would celebrate. And so there's a little bit of a common ground. Everyone can say kindness, you know, everyone can say responsibility. So it's really been kind of watered down to like five kind of basic virtues that without any application don't really mean much. Responsibility and kindness. I mean, it means something. Um, but without kind of fleshing out what these mean, don't go so far. So these days people talk about instilling values, keep that at home. 
let school be about critical thinking. So I'm not surprised that that is the majority here. And besides, I mean, do we really want um, others to be, you know, take the primary lead in that? That is one of the reasons many choose private school over public school is because there are certain values they want taught that public school is not allowed to or not equipped to address, um, given the diversity. In any case, friends, um, I'd love to, to revisit that conversation in our, our chat, but let's start with John Dewey. What should the school day consist of for children? Is it better to learn by listening to a lecture? Is it better to learn by doing practice exercises, by talking to others in dialogue, by going on a field trip? How do people, in particular kids, learn best? Here we return to America with John Dewey, the thinker who helped set the stage for contemporary education in this country by encouraging critical skills rather than simple indoctrination, by introducing the world to a notion of education that relied heavily on learning by doing. Dewey, who born in Vermont, changed our system of schooling in a way that persists to this day. Like William James, Dewey was in the school of pragmatism. Under pragmatism, we cannot know what is fully true, so we need only to find truth that helps us navigate the world. This idea would be critiqued by Bertrand Russell, who believed pragmatism had forfeited the philosophical search for truth, right? Most philosophers want to search for truths that may seem hard to grasp. Dewey says, what a waste of time, like James said earlier. Let's just focus on the truths that help us live our lives rather than the ones that may be meaningful, but really inaccessible. But for John Dewey, pragmatism played a key role in education because the purpose of education was to impart knowledge that will meet human needs and fulfill human purposes. Dewey referred to his pragmatism as instrumentalism, which in the words of Britannica holds that the, the value of any idea is determined by its usefulness in helping people to adapt to the world around them. In Judaism, we're having instrumentalist thoughts all the time. For example, we can make the truth claim that God hears and can we make the truth claim that God hears and answers our prayers? Probably not. But we know how the words of prayer can change our lives, whether or not we know if God hears them. We know if prayer gives us more positivity or meaning in our lives or not. Prayer then for many of us is a good thing and perhaps even true on the grounds that it's useful. We join communi community, we feel uplifted, we feel hope, we feel connection. This reminds me of a Hasidic teaching. Perhaps the most important single line for me is the statement attributed to the Rabbi, to, uh, to Rabbi Pinchas of Koretz, a contemporary of the, of the Baal Shem Tov. People think that you pray to God, he said, but that's not the case. Rather, prayer itself is of the essence of divinity. That's to say there's no me and there's God and prayer that connects us. Rather, an act of prayer itself is where divinity exists, within the act of prayer. Part of what Dewey advocated for in his instrumentalist education philosophy was that learning should not be abstract, but hands-on. A person must learn not only from books, but from interaction with real people and environments. A teacher talking at the front of the room for Dewey was not sufficient. In a way, this was subversive, making education less about an authority figure handing knowledge to a passive student. Instead, the students would participate experientially. 
As Jews, we can, of course, understand what he's talking about. In Jewish education, one is supposed to mainly learn hands-on with the Chavruta. And the teacher is there to assist you as someone who's more experienced, right? In the room, you break up in study partners, and then um, you come back together. Do we believe that education was of practical importance for more than just the students? It was needed for a healthy democracy. Dewey was born right before the Civil War and lived through Reconstruction, the Gilded Age, World War I, and World War II. Wow. So he saw in his lived experience how crucial it was to have a well-educated citizenry that could think on its feet to solve real-world problems. Isn't that pretty amazing that you could be born right before the Civil War and then still be alive for World War I and World War II? I mean, it's like, what a life. Um, Dewey himself helped found the NAACP and the ACLU. Wow. And he saw a deep need to support democracy and academic freedom in opposition to the rise in fascism he was witnessing in the world. His impact on the American culture was so deep that to some degree, we can today look at America's status as a, as a world superpower and see that it is because of our pragmatic concerns and actions that Dewey's country came to be a global leader, right? It wasn't that we were just training a nation of philosophers or a nation of academics. We were training a nation of people to solve problems, to invent technology, to strengthen a military, to advance business interests, right? To get stuff done. Um, there's many valid critiques of American culture, but one is not that Americans don't know how to get stuff done, right? America is the world leader in getting stuff done in this regard. There's lots to unpack there about that and who gets exploited and who doesn't. But um, it's a very efficient, very efficient country. Americans love efficiency. We, we go to Yelp and we scream when people aren't efficient, when our coffee is late or our coffee is cold or something didn't arrive, arrive 10 minutes late. We go tell Yelp, right? Because we want things done quickly and done well or we discard of those businesses. His impact on American culture was so deep. Sorry, I skipped to go back. Yes, America made many great gains because many great gains because our ways of thinking have enabled us to solve problems and make practical advances. But perhaps we've lost something as well, an exalted place for ethics, relationships, and matters of the eternal. And maybe in our time, the same critique is worthy of the state of Israel. Both countries at one point or another have celebrated being a startup nation that was building something great out of nothing. Might it be, be more remarkable for America and for Israel to deepen their sense of the sacred, not just of being a startup nation of entrepreneurship? Is there not space to inspire a renaissance towards spiritual journeying in both societies that pride themselves on um, business success? We should not need to choose between one side or the other. Instead, we can consciously make space for both. We know the educational project should indeed be heavily pragmatic and humble on matters of the unknown. At the same time, we know the life of the mind and soul are of deep value, and they are what make pragmatic success worth achieving in the first place. If we recall from our examination of Thomas Hobbes, there's a stream of thought that says people by nature are not pro-social and need a social contract to rein in their behavioral excesses. Dewey, however, fundamentally disagreed, believing people may be inherently good to one another from the start. This upbeat look on human nature 
makes it much easier for one to say education should be student-driven and experience-based rather than about a teacher taming their uncivilized pupils. Morality for Dewey was more like creating art than memorizing principles. He wrote in his book, Art as Experience, imagination is the chief instrument of the good. Art is more moral than moralities. For the latter are or tend to become consecrations of the status quo, reflections of custom, reinforcements of the established order. The moral prophets of humanity have always been poets, even though they spoke in free verse or by parable. Art has been the means of keeping alive the sense of purpose. Is that outrun evidence and of meanings that transcend indurated habit. It, it is art that keeps our moral selves alive and moving. And for Dewey, ethical principles exist only in the real world. He wrote, Fraternity, liberty, equality, isolated from communal life are hopeless abstractions. Their separate assertions lead to mushy sentimentalism or else too extravagant and fanatical violence, which in the end defeats its own aims. We can absolutely see the parallels here with the Jewish tradition. When we read the prophets of the Tanakh, we are indeed also reading a form of moral poetry. And when we learn Pirkei Avot, we're learning not just rules about ethics in the context of the lives of the ancient sages, which encourages us to think hard about the function of morality in our own lives. We can see the parallel in the Zohar, a work in which the sages don't learn in a study hall, they learn while walking around the Galilee. Rav Kook also writes explicitly on aesthetics and morality. The wondrous Sadikim, for whom this world does not exist without its boundaries, does not exist with its boundaries, limitations, and lowliness, it is they who make the physical world precious and give honor to it because they see within it a supernal world, its pure illumination, from the source of light, its beauty and its goodness elevated with great exhilaration. A sensitivity to the pleasantness and beauty of the physical world increases with these siddiquim to a level of supernal holiness and refinement until they live a full life that contains all the vitality of aesthetic pleasure, which brings the light to life at the high level. Their spiritual senses, even with regards to aesthetic matters, such as the beauty that exists in, appear in appearances, song, the nation and morality expand exponentially until they are viewed as the sources of beauty and order in life. Rav Cook also encouraged the establishment of the, the Betzalel Art School in the letter below, which also touches on similar themes from the text above. By the grace of God, the leaders of the Honored Society for the Study of Hebrew Art, the Betzalel Association, Shalom. One ray of light has shined on us from amidst the thick uh, fox of our presently dark world. Right, this is pre-World War II. One of the clear signs of revival, actually pre-World War I even, is the honorable pursuit that is, is to emerge from your honored association, the revival of Hebrew art and aesthetics in Israel. The sigh of our very talented brothers and masters of aesthetics and the arts who are finding a rightful place in the highways and byways of society is heartwarming and beautiful, for a heavenly spirit has carried them to Jerusalem, set as a seal upon our hearts to crown our holy city with their pleasant designs. No one can be but joyous at this sign. This important field of aesthetic arts can truly bring a blessing and open the livelihoods and provisions 
to many of our brothers' families that live in the Holy Land. It will also nurture the sensitivity for beauty and purity with which the precious children of Zion are, are so blessed. And it will uplift many depressed souls, giving them a clear and illuminating view of the beauty of life, nature, and work, of the honor of labor and diligence. All those are exalted principles that fill the souls of all Jews with feelings of delight and glory. Right? So there's, um, if you listen to the top four or five reasons why for the last 3,000 years, Jews were Zionists. One reason would be um, because Jews need to be safe. Jews won't be safe in the broader world. Jews need a place of refuge. That's one form of Zionism. Z Zionism as refuge. Another form of Zionism emerges, which is about sovereignty. Jews want to actualize a politic. We want to actualize a political responsibility, um, which is partially about our security and partially about lived ethics, that ethics will be actualized through nationalism and through being able to control a welfare system, be able to allocate resources collectively. A third form of Zionism emerges religiously, that this is a biblical ideal, right? Just like Abraham was told to go to Israel, just like after Moshe, after the Jews were in Egypt, they went through the 40 years of the desert and then entered, um, entered the land. This is part of the prophetic tradition. That, that Jews should live in this particular land. But another form of Zionism emerges that is about culture. The revival of the Hebrew language, the revival of art and culture. And this is something we'll see in some later thinkers as well. But that's part of what Rav Cook is touching upon here. This notion that, um, that art um, and culture and language are interconnected and can best be actualized um, within a cultural renaissance, a revival of that culture. And so, uh, of course, there's many Zionists that combined the cultural, the political, the biblical, the need for refuge, you know, various other, other dimensions. Um, but that's something we're kind of touching on here, the value of art and what it means to have independence in order to cultivate um, that art to a different degree and what it means to have a home to have the freedom to uh, cultivate that art. Further, one of Dewey's ideas that certainly jives with Judaism is that we're not just to memorize hard and fast rules, but rather learn values that are applied in the world. Dewey moves education from an authority to an experience, right? It's so, it's so uh, many of you may remember, um, but it's so easy to forget today how authority, <laughs> authoritative, authoritarian um, education in America used to be and around the world about memorizing, about re repetition, learning by rote, um, even kind of, you know, if you are trying to engage, kind of getting a little pot, <laughs> getting a little ruler hit on your, on your hands um, or, or the like. And so the notion that students' participation matters beyond just memorization the notice that engagement is positive, the notion that there's an experience we want to cultivate, not just an authority that you should be loyal to and responsive to. This is one of the reasons why, in addition to many people hating school, why many people um, um, walked away from Jewish Hebrew school too, because it was just another taste of that experience of being yelled at and being disciplined rather than have a joyful um, experience. 
Of course, I'm sure some people here had a more positive experience, but I hear about that experience all the time. Um, he writes, um, Dewey, in his work, Human Nature and Conduct, Conduct, in morals, a hankering for certainty, born of timidity and nourished by love of authoritative prestige, has led to the idea that absence of immutably fixed and universally applicable ready-made principles is equivalent to moral chaos. There's another manifestation of the desire to escape the strain of the actual moral situation is genuine uncertainty of possibilities and consequences. We are confronted with another case of the all-too-human love of certainty, a case of the wish for an intellectual patent issued by authority. So as we know, here's what really lazy parenting and teaching looks like for values education. Really lazy values education looks like naming the value. Hey, be humble. Hey, you should be kind today. Um, hey, go be courageous. It's just somebody prescriptively telling somebody to live a value, right? It's an authority figure saying, hey, this value matters. Now go do it. There's no moral imagination. There is no conversation. There is no um, practice. There's no tool building as to how to cultivate it, like in Musar, how you cultivate character traits. It's just, um, hey, go do it. And you'd be amazed how dominant this still is today, that people think their kids will be moral because they told them to be moral, because they told them don't lie, right? Don't cheat, as if telling somebody something is going to cultivate um, the uh, emotional intelligence and the behavioral brilliance to know how to live such values. While it may appear that Jewish law also attempts to just reduce ethics to rules, don't do this, do this, the Torah also makes clear that one must do what is right and good in the eyes of God. According to the rabbis, this means one must be willing to go beyond the letter of the law as certain situations may demand. Halachic rules can provide a basis for our ethical actions, but they are never meant to serve as the final limit. Dewey was influenced by Charles Darwin in that he believed humans were interacting with the natural world but not separate from it. Consequently, we are affected, affecting, we are affected by our social environments. We are not fixed selves. We are constantly adapting in response to the world around us. Dewey took from Darwin, who himself was in the tradition of the ancient Greek thinker, Pericles, the idea that nature is in a constant state of change. And because nature is always changing, so are we as humans. Dewey made a critique of ancient religion, saying that humans, especially historically, would deal with uncertainty in the world by turning to the gods. Instead, he believed we should seek to master the world ourselves, right? When you're uncertain, don't turn to the gods, master the world yourself. We can even understand this to be a criticism of the Torah, which encourages the people to follow the commandments so that they receive the right weather for their crops. To someone like Dewey, it's better to instead learn to predict weather patterns and build irrigation systems. We should do things to respond to crises rather than praying for help and making religious meaning out of them. Dewey would reject that, that biblical worldview that there's a supernatural power above all the natural powers that we ourselves can respond to and learn from. This too, is this too, of course, is reflected in the Jewish tradition, such as in our notion of tikkun olam, that redemption will not happen without human participation. Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik, 
argues that we must navigate between the need for just human or divine control, right? The world is not just in human control, nor just in divine control. In his essay, Majesty and Humility, the Rav teaches that the that religious charge is partially to be majestic, to be godlike, and to master our environments, right? Humans are powerful and majestic. On the other hand, he recognized the side of the human experience that is deeply humbling as we are faced with the fact of how little power and how little control we truly have. Every attempt we make to master our environment inevitably also shows us the limits of what we can do, majesty and humility. Friends, to conclude, I believe as Jews, we can't reject Dewey, but we can find a place to reconcile the instrumental with the eternal. I like the illustration of Shabbat. We define the activities that are pro prohibited on Shabbat, however we might do so, our taste of the world to come, by our practical work in the world. The Mishnah identifies what pragmatic, useful work looks like, and then we take a brief break from that type of work at least one day of the week. For sure, we place a high premium on the useful and the real, but we also make space for what's greater than what's just useful six days of the week. And these two realms can inform and strengthen one another as we strive to live our best lives. As Jews, we ought to be both instrumentalists and idealists. Okay, friends, I would love to hear from you. Yes, hi, Eileen. Since a former teacher, we studied Dewey. And um, I'm pretty sure that his philosophy is still prevalent today. Um, and I, at the beginning, I was listening to something and it reminded me of NLP, which is Neuro Linguistic Programming. And in NLP, one of the things that it teaches is how people learn. And 70% of people learn visually, about 15 to 20 learn through hearing or audio, and a small number, maybe 10%, are kinesthetic. They live, um, they learn by actually doing. So it seems to me that you need to combine all three of these methods in order to teach everybody and to have them learn and understand. Great, great. Um, can you list your three one more time? Okay, the first is visual. 70% of all people are visual. 20% of learners learn by hearing, they're audio. Okay. And 10% are kinesthetic, they learn by doing. Great, great, thank you. Okay, great. Very helpful to have that and to think about that for ourselves and how and and and, and how we learn. Um, and also important to think about that because, again, one of the instrumental factors um, or values of education, as Dewey saw it, was to bolster democracy. We want people to be active citizens, and to be active citizens, school prepares them to do that, so that they feel connected to society so that they feel that their vote matters, so they feel that running for office matters, so they feel civic engagement matters, and 
that they're informed to vote on such issues and participate in in those issues, um, whether or joining the military or service or national service in some other way. And we might ask ourselves, how do people get prepared today educationally for democracy? Um, I, I don't want to be overly critical, but I think most of us can uh, agree that there's um, a relative level of ignorance among voters today on a high number of voting issues. Um, many people have an ideology, oh, I'm strongly pro-life or pro-choice, or I'm strongly um, pacifist or hawkish, or I have a strong view on taxation, right? People hold strong ideologies, but actually understanding the bills that are emerging, understanding where the, you know, what's at stake, understanding the various local uh, um, issues on the ballot, the state issues on the ballot, the, the county issues, the national and foreign policy issues, um, most are just voting by party. I go, oh, whatever my party says, I'm in, I'm in. I just vote Democrat, I just vote Republican down the line. No idea what's going on, just vote party, right? And so too, so like we might ask ourselves, how do we, especially going in an election year, how do we educate for democracy? And picking up what Eileen says, how, how, how do we do that visually and through hearing and kinesthetic? How do we um, how do we engage conversations? How do we educate? Because we're all educators, we're all learners, and we're all educators. And every time we talk to someone, we're in a space of learning, and um, in and a part of cultivating a societal discourse. And so it's a great thing of like, if we're it, maybe you're going to have a family member or friend at the Thanksgiving table who sees the world very different than you do, um, or at Hanukkah or at New Year's. And you're thinking, how do we talk about some of these issues, right? So that's a cool thing to think about. And that's why the Haggadah at Pesach is very visual. I mean, assuming you have a visual one. Most Haggadot these days have artwork in them and, and pictures and the like. Um, in fact, many churches today, synagogues are a little behind. I mean, I mean, um, Orthodoxy would never do this, but Reform and Conservative could. Um, many churches, especially in the evangelical world, are using PowerPoint screens in the church service. Not only are they using power, uh, not, not only are they using screens, they, they 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 you might like this or hate this. They have the kids have phones or iPads, and they're answering, they're engaging on the screen in some churches. So the pastor might ask a question, and the kids on their iPad or phone are like answering the question on the screen in the middle of the church service. So some you'll say, oh my gosh, that's terrible. That's like the death of religious experience. Other people are like, no, that's great. The kids are engaging and interacting. So um, that's kind of a visual way to participate in a kind of attempting to have a religious experience. In any case, lots more to say there. Aglaia, over to you. Thanks, Eileen. Okay, unfortunately, you have Aglaia the student and Aglaia the teacher responding here though. So this might may or may not go over well with everyone. That's everybody here. Everyone here is a teacher and everyone here okay. is a student. We are all. That's all of us. All right. So first of all, okay, Glay the student. Well, the short version of the story though is that one, um, I absolutely hated school, loathed it basically though, and I hated every adult that I couldn't. They all drove me absolutely crazy. Now, 
I was a horrible, disrespectful child. I got the hell beaten out of me all the time, though, because I was a horrible, disrespectful child who didn't want to do my schoolwork and everything. But, okay, here's part of the problem, though. Okay, you don't put a friggin' formula in front of me and tell me, hey, this formula is going to work, and then basically expect me to believe you that it's going to work and everything. So I'm the annoying little kid sitting in the back of math class trying to prove the formula, basically, before I actually believe it enough. So, you know, like, even though the teacher said, no, trust me, this formula is going to work. Now, if they had just shown me, hey, there is all this, you know, formula has already been proven, you know, then I wouldn't have been a that obnoxious kid sitting in the back of math class trying to prove the formula because I couldn't believe for the life of me that the formula was going to work until I proved it. Now, that's where Aglaia the student comes in, okay? Aglaia the student was always the one getting into trouble and everything, though. And then, well, then actually that ended up helping Aglaia the teacher because what happens is now people send me the kids who cannot get their work done, and then I have... <laughs> seconds to figure out a way to get this kid to get their work done and everything and so I'll come up with something you know like even if I have to tell them okay pretend you're playing some sort of video game with and you're writing this paper and this has literally happened so we're going to turn this paper into a video game how are you going to structure this like a video game now unfortunately though this actually works and people say no please help make my children get their work done but was it appreciated when I was a student absolutely not I was and then also I was supposed to be raised according to the my child is an honor student at this, you know, and all this other stuff, the playbook and shown around like a friggin' trained monkey. So anyway, though, this is the thing. This is what bothers me about all of these ideas about education that people come up with. Okay, I, I hate to say this, though, but the poll kind of was like, none of these are true. Okay, <laughs> Because when it comes to kids, all right, no two kids are alike. You're always going to have the one who's obnoxious and basically like sitting there saying, no, I want to prove the formula or no, how did that work? If you can't explain to me how it works, then it just doesn't mean anything to me. I mean, so honestly, though, it's just kind of, I mean, it's something that I did appreciate about Judaism. At least I have room to, like, you know, think, you know, and be creative about this. However, though, like, it's kind of, you know, I don't know. I think that there are a lot of teachers who would die if they found out that I turned an essay into a video game, you know, like assignment for a kid, though. But he got his work done, didn't he? Okay. Or, you know, I sat there and I, one time there was a kid who hadn't done any of her work all semester. I had two weeks to get her to pass her, you know, like final exam and everything though. So she said, oh yeah. So I'm sitting there scribbling on my notebook. Oh no, I'm doing your homework with you. I really am doing your, your homework. I'm doing the same thing. I'm just scribbling on my notebook, but she thinks I'm doing actually the same, you know, questions she's doing and it somehow worked. You know, and she started doing her work and everything. So I guess my guess is that honestly, when people get these ideas in their heads, well, this is what education should do. This is what education should do. They're underestimating. Um, I think honestly, though, it depends on the kid. It really does. And I know that we don't have time to tailor an education plan to every single kid, though. But there's always going to be, you know, I don't know. There's always going to be this kid who's going to say, no, this problem does not this. Do not give me this formula until you show me the proof that this formula works. So and then they're going to get in trouble and all this. I don't know. Anyway, thank that's you. why. I yeah, I mean, thank so, you, Aglaia, But what a cool dream that would be if we could tailor educational experiences towards every kid. Um, I mean, as opposed to some public schools having 30 to 40 kids in a class, um, I hope it doesn't go higher than that. That's already just crazy. Uh, some private schools might have, you know, between 10 and 20, which is still feels like a lot for one teacher. Um, and then you have all those different learning needs and learning styles. And it's just, it's very sad that 
um, that that's how we have to educate kids is just thrown together without their unique needs necessarily being met. And, um, and then oftentimes the, the teacher's favorite student is the one who really works well with that model. And the troublemaking students are the ones who don't really fit into that model. We just had parent-teacher conferences yesterday and one of the teachers praised one of my kids for a few minutes and then said, but you know, sometimes he has a little trouble focusing. And I was like, uh, yeah, I, I was that nine-year-old. <laughs> You know, of course, like, duh, you put like a nine-year-old kid in their chair and be like, sit there for nine hours now and listen to them talk. And like, no PE, one PE a week. And um, don't talk to your friends who are right next to you. Don't think creatively. Just focus on what I say all day. Like, uh, of course, it's going to be pretty darn hard to focus. You know, that doesn't mean everyone has a a, a, a learning disability if, if they can't focus all day. Um, and um in any case, yes. Yeah, so I appreciate you raising that, and um, and what a world to dream of, and 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 what a world for us to continue to respond to. That every person we know, we think about how they want to connect differently. They want to talk about ideas differently. Some people want to debate. Some people don't want a combative experience. Some people want to, you know, go to an art museum. Some people want to discuss the news. There's so many different ways to explore life with people. And and to learn together, and that's a cool thing about having many different kind of friendships, is engaging that differently. So, anyways, Aglaia, thanks for reflecting on your past. It certainly resonates with my past as well. Yes, hi Ed. I guess I wanted to give you a, a sort of my experience at at this, um, and it's um, I guess pragmatic. Uh, why am I taking this philosophy course? <laughs> because I can remember that I took philosophy course in college. But my intention was to get a passing grade. So I was taking notes like mad so that I could regurgitate this stuff, get a passing grade, forget it all, and go on to the next. Mm -hmm. This course, however, says I don't have to worry about taking notes, passing a test, what I am interested in is now understanding what it is that I'm supposed to be learning. And I think that makes a big difference between you know, children, maybe in college, and then young adults, and then it gets into the experienced adults. And I've had some experience in teaching uh, Bankers, banking. Uh, they are all younger than I am, but I mean, they are all older than I am. Um, but in my career, I had the opportunity to go to hundreds of banks and evaluate safety and soundness management. And so they valued that experience as to say, okay, I've only been in one bank, even though it's international and you know a huge bank. Um, so what I was taught is that adult learning has got to be based on the student's experience level. And the way you take advantage of that is to do just like you're doing right now, 
you might give a little lecture, but then you want to hear about how that fits with everybody else's experience. And as an adult, they probably have a whole lot of experience that may be different, may be similar, but in that discussion, you try to come up with, you know, well, what would be the ideal? What is, what can we do? And I think that was where I, as an instructor of adults, learned a heck of a lot. And that wasn't because of experience. It was just because I wanted to hear the opposing opinions. So I think there's got to be a difference, not, yes, on an individual level, but certainly I think... I think Dewey was headed for children. And, and I think that that makes a difference in, in the student population. If, if, they're college, they're, if they're in college and they're trying to get a passing grade to you know, get their degree, that's different. Um, but if they're an adult trying to find out, oh, well, what are the other experiences? What, what can I learn from them? then you have to have that experience level and you have to be able to listen to that and probably learn from it. So. Awesome. Uh, thank you for that. Just to respond briefly to both your points, literally like top three of my favorite things to do in life. One of my top three is just adult learning experiences. Exactly for what you said, because nothing against kids, kids have lots of wisdom and beauty and things to share, but adults have had so much life experience and so much perspective and so much more wisdom and humility around those experiences that um, for us to do exactly what we do here weekly is people to share how ideas fit in their lives and don't fit in their lives and what that means for them. That's exactly what I love the most. And it's nice just to ask somebody, how are you doing today? And hear what's happening. It's, it's another thing to throw some ideas on, on the wall, or I don't know what the phrase is, throw some ideas in the air, and then all of us kind of make some personal meaning around that. And that's, it's so much fun. So thank you, Ed, for that. And to your first point, I am not smart enough to know how to resolve um, the, the, how pervasive and toxic kind of the grading educational culture is and how that affects our, our thinking for the rest of our lives. I wish I knew how to resolve that because it seems we need grades and some sort of metrics um, on some level. And yet the way we're doing it seems to be so toxic. And and I think that few, many people, few people are ever able to remove that from their brain, that actually they want to prove to some external external source that their life is successful, that their life is meaningful, that they're getting a good grade in life, right? As opposed to learning to think for themselves, create their own meaning, you know, measure their own success of their life. Um, that, that sense that there's a teacher in the room and then I need to prove to that teacher in the room that my life is worthy is something that many people kind of never grow out of, even in the workplace that like, I don't actually care about what I'm doing. I'm trying to show the company or show the boss that I'm doing what I'm told to keep my job, right? I'm getting a, that I'm getting a good grade or as a parent or as a grandparent that I'm proving to you I'm doing enough or as a spouse, right? As opposed to just being immersed in it and learning within it and taking ownership of it. So thank you, Ed, for both of those points and, and for, for all else you shared. Okay, a bunch of hands went up. Let's go to Sarah and then and then Gary and then Lauren. Hello, 
Uh, well, I certainly can relate to what both Ed and Aglaia have already said, as well as usually. And um, I, as to where um, Dewey's influence was, yeah, it was towards the, the elementary classroom, perhaps, but it had an effect at college level because it instituted basically cooperative education as well, which um, is that learning and maybe even more of our, the possibility of cultivating curiosity as well as, and I think that's the thing about adult education is that we, when we don't have that grade or our future invested, then we can cultivate curiosity. And that's why we are so hungry to learn more. It, and I struggled with the first, going back to the poll, I struggled between critical thinking and values and, mm -hmm. and chose critical thinking because we are seeing such a paucity of it. Um, particularly when people are just buying whatever is showing up on social media and not questioning it, that it's just so frustrating and there's no critical thinking. So that's why I went with that. But if I were going to choose something to really be cultivating in the educational system, it would be about cultivating that curiosity at a very young age. Mm -hmm. And certainly when... And before I went to medical school, I was trying to do ele elementary education and they didn't want me because I had a degree in theater. And <laughs> somehow that was considered to be anathema. And it was like, no, they need to be entertained. They're sitting here. They have to enjoy this. This has to be something creative and fun and delightful mm -hmm. to really keep these kids engaged. That's what I wanted in school was to be engaged. And that's what I wanted for students. So I, I'm very grateful that my medical school education allowed me to do pass fail, hooray for that. But before that, when I went back after graduating and had to take all of my sciences, I found myself after my first semester tutoring. And what I did was I treated the kids I was tutoring like I did the kindergartners in my classroom because that's how they could relate to stuff. I mean, all of this weird ideas in chemistry were just so beyond most people that it was like, well, what would I tell a five-year-old? And they would get it. And so it's about, it's about engagement, but curiosity ultimately. Mm -hmm. And I'm complete. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, thank you, Sarah, for that. And um, we can have an influence on the educational culture of the country, uh, or at least our district, if we choose to get involved in that. Um, and uh, certainly not an easy thing to shift, but also we can play that role with people that we're engaging with. Just to pick up on one of the many great points you made, Sarah, was in terms of the, the return to critical thinking and how desperately we need that. Um, I, I think, and 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 folks can put in the chat here if they agree or disagree, uh, that a big part of our problem around critical thinking as adults outside of school is our relationship to comfort 
for many of us, we want to be really comfortable. Um, and that's not a bad thing. Like maybe you have cozy slippers and you like tea and you know, a certain blanket. And that's great. We can be comfortable. But there's also a space to be uncomfortable. And I think part of the power of school is that you're really uncomfortable a lot because you're asked to do a lot of things you don't want to do. You're asked to think about things you don't feel like thinking about. You're asked to think harder when you can't figure it out. Right. And that push, that discomfort is so great for the mind. And when we get older, we sometimes don't always put ourselves in situations where people are pushing us to think beyond the way we already think. Um, we might do that a little bit for ourselves, but that's worth us thinking about. How do we do that? How do we sustain spaces of thinking beyond what we already know in ways that are a little bit uncomfortable? Again, it might bring joy. It might be a, a joyful discomfort um, and, and cultivate curiosity, as Sarah said, which certainly can be joyful. But that's a hard thing to cultivate once you're outside of school and there's somebody making you do it. So, okay, great. So over to you, Gary, then Lauren. Thank you, Sarah. Good morning, everyone. Uh, just a, a, a quick few points. You know, uh, you mentioned about just uh, how to be uh, talk, just be gracious and uh, the values that you talked about at the beginning. Uh, as a parent, uh, we quickly learned, uh, of course, I have grandchildren and adult children now, but, you know, you just can't talk to talk. You got to walk to walk. So it's one thing to say to be kind. It's another thing that, to uh, shout, let your children shout at you of being kind or gracious or sadaka or, mm -hmm. or uh, living a Jewish lifestyle, whatever whatever it is. You just kids quickly pick up that uh, you're very transparent, uh, and I, I see that in society today. You know, do this, but uh, but I don't do that. So that's that point. The second point. Uh, I also teach adults. I'm also in healthcare, as you guys know, and I teach in, or was teaching in the classroom as well as residents. And uh, and and the thing that I I found is, and I constantly uh, what I find is that just tell me what I need to know. Uh, this thought of reaching out and and uh, learning for the sake of learning, uh, and and I still work with residents, and I I. And they would just want me to give them the answer. I said, I don't want to give you the answer. Uh, you know, you're you're in a profession or you're in a world that that really requires lifelong self self-directed learning. I don't care if you're a doctor, a lawyer, or whatever, you know, you just can't stop learning. And uh you have to continue that 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 wow of the world. Uh and you just have to do it. I can't always be there for you. And and I I wasn't right. I think most of us of uh, the older group here. We're, didn't go to school that way, you know. This was geometry. Just do, just do, just do the formula. It works, you know. We never went outside and measured the flagpole and said these angles and, and and what have you. The question that I have, if to bring it back to a Jewish perspective, uh, you know, if, if a major part of Judaism is to be a or goyim, a light into the nations, uh, and if we don't identify ourselves as Jews per se in the world. Uh, as an individual, obviously we do it as as a group. How do we how, how do we go about telling the world, uh, not just as human beings, but as Jews, that uh, uh, we do have a commitment to living a more ethical, moral life? And this is this is this is uh, you know, if some people feel that's what we are chosen to do, they use that word in quotations. Then how do we how do we proceed with that in and not just educational, but living the life that we should live? Wow. Wow. Okay. Awesome. So I, I think all three things you said, Gary, so well are so connected. 
And, um, and I think a big part of it is the, if when, when we're not, when we're talking to kids and like you said, not just stating it, but showing that we're living it, that we do it in the micro, not just in the macro. Like we don't just say, Hey, you should be of service. Look, I'm of service. I volunteer over there. Rather, we should show them a service orientation and how we relate to them. So too, we don't just say, go be empathetic. I was empathetic yesterday, right? We show them empathy as we talk to them, right? And so it's not just that in the macro or, or learning. We don't say, hey, I go to this class once a week. Um, isn't learning great? We, we take a learning orientation in how we approach them. Um, and, um, and, and then they can see they can see with us how we actually live that 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 model, as you certainly do, Gary, and and, and all of you do. Um, and I mean, you and it's by the way, it's just amazing. It's none of you, but you wouldn't believe how many people I meet with who never ask me one question. They literally, and I, we all know people like this, and I don't want to blame them. We're all hardwired different. They literally talk about um, their own stuff the whole time, and. Um, there's never once like a, Hey, how are you? Or what are you doing in work? Or how are your kids? Right. It's just a very different way of relating. And when we talk to kids or grandkids and we actually ask them their ideas, we ask them how they're doing. That's actually a radical thing to do because you wouldn't believe how few people ask kids how they're doing, ask them what they think or what they believe without a judgment or great orientation, just the curiosity. Um, and to your last point there, Gary, um, I think that, um, yes, this notion, uh, around Jews, um, and of course we're not all Jews here, but, um, I think it's aspirational and I think it's something we should aspire to. And it's a, and it's a great question. It's not that, oh, Jews are inherently and necessarily more moral than other people, or God forbid that we're superior, but rather we feel called to a very sacred moral mission. And it's not just that we want to convey that to people. It's that we we want to live it each day, not to persuade the world that we're more moral, but because we feel called to it. We want to demonstrate that we're living that. Yeah, Ed, I see you want to jump in that point. Yeah. Um, because Thanksgiving is coming up. Yeah. Uh, I just want to mention that I read in the newspaper uh, in 2015 about this family that invited Assyrian refugees to Thanksgiving dinner. And I thought, well, that's crazy. I mean, how would they know anything about Thanksgiving dinner? And then as a sort of, not an afterthought, but, you know, further down, that this was a Jewish family. <laughs> Wait a minute. How does that make any sense? And I think what you're saying is that, yeah, we practice what we preach, regardless of whether we're Jewish or Christians, we ought to be practicing what we preach. And that becomes what? I mean, it, it, it's a secondary issue that you're Jewish or Christian. It's more that you are human. Thank you, Ed. And that's so great because our social discourse is so low right now. What most of it sounds like is that person's a liar. That person's a cheat. That person's a racist or sexist. All it is is screaming at how bad the other person is, right? 
And imagine if we flip that and look, there's place for critiques, but imagine we flip that to be like, I want to challenge myself to live by the virtues that I think others aren't living by. And that's what I want to build my life around is like <clears throat> living the virtues I think the world needs more than ever. Um, so Lauren, um, Lauren, I think you were about to jump in there, Lauren. Thank you, Ed. Yeah, I'll, I'll go very, very quickly because we've got like not even a minute. Um, I was a teaching associate for fourth year pharmacy students and it was experiential uh, work for them. It, it was close to their graduation. They were with me for two months and I was working in geriatric rehabilitation inpatient. And what I found was it all depended on the attitude of the student. Most were good. Most wanted to be really good pharmacists, go out there, make a difference in people's lives. I had some that just, they just wanted to like tick off everything they had to do and get their mark. And some of the, I mean, one I almost failed and um, the, the faculty wouldn't let me fail her, but she just, she had no clue. And I would come back and give her her feedback, like you weren't respectful to the patient. You didn't ask the patient, you know, how they were feeling. You, you, did, you missed this and this and this, and you got all of this wrong, <laughs> you know, like you, you didn't look him anything up for, and it, it was so frustrating. And I, I'm really frightened to think that she's working somewhere because she's, she was awful, but it's, <laughs> it's all attitude. And, and I mean, I can't imagine knowing that you're going into a profession where you're looking after people and not care. Shocking. Thank That's it. And you. happy Matthew? American Thanksgiving, everybody. Thank you. Yes. Thank and you. happy happy being a Canadian day, because it's great to be yeah. Canadian. Um, Matthew, do you want to jump in, Matthew? Yeah, just one comment about living the life. I have a nephew who one day went to his bosses and he works on Wall Street, derivatives, things like that, and said, you know, I take my kids to shul. I'm not really orthodox, but you know what? It's not the right lesson if they have to observe Shabbos and I work, so I don't want any more phone calls on Shabbos. And it was during the summer. And his boss said, fine. And the third Shabbat, around nine o'clock at night, the phone rings. He picks it up. Uh, so, Josh, it's an hour after Shabbat. I have six people on the line all over the world. He was never bothered again on any Jewish holiday out of respect. And it was his kids grew up. They decided all of them to go to Hebrew day school, which was interesting because they're not Orthodox at all. But he walked the walk and he was respected for doing it. I still consult for my former employer in New York and their rule on Jewish holidays, Muslim holidays, any holidays. If you observe, we trust you. I had an assistant who always took off the Thursday before Good Friday because that was Holy Thursday because she went to church. If you violated the rule, you got none of the holidays. They trusted you, whatever you choose. So if you walk the walk, things come out a lot better than just saying things. That's my only real comment on this. Thank you so much. Yeah. Oh, wonderful to be with you all. Thank you so much. And, um, Look forward to seeing you all next week. Just to give you a heads up on who we're exploring together, we will be talking um, about Martin Buber.
uh, uh -huh. Martin Hoover is going to move us in an interesting direction. So have a wonderful day and uh, a meaningful <laughs> week.